Good morning. It is good to be here today. I, uh, I was told your pastor preaches normally about an hour. Is that correct? Uh, I learned a long time ago that you look at your sermon and then you look at how much time you have and you, I was told in seminary that if you just have to, it's like good sausage, you need to be able to cut it off at any time. And uh, so I may have to do that today, I don't know. But it is great to be here. Uh, I don't like the circumstances. I wish your pastor were here, and I'm sure you do as well. Uh, I encourage you to pray for him, intercede for him, hurt for him, put yourself in his place. Uh, literally ask God just to give you his symptoms and give him a peace. And I, I think God will do great things if you'll let him do it. And I don't know how much you believe in the power of prayer, but uh, you should. Because God certainly does great things. There was a pastor named Charles Simeon. He was in Cambridge, England. He started pastoring Holy Trinity Church in 1780. And when he went the first time to preach, he stood behind a pulpit a little bit bigger than this, higher than this over the people, which is pretty typical in England at that day. And he said, this is wrong. And he got a chisel and a hammer, and he chiseled out on the pulpit in front of him these words, that we might see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. And for 54 years, he preached in that pulpit, and he, every time he said, I looked at it to say, I'm here for one reason and one reason only, that we might see Jesus. I don't want you to see me. I don't want you to listen to me. I want you to hear a word from the Lord. And if we do that today, then God is blessed, and you will be blessed, and he'll be honored. And uh, that's what my, my desire is. Every time I preach, wherever it is, in small and large churches and conventions and all over the country, wherever I preach, I have one desire, and that is that we have an encounter with a living God. If we don't, it's a failure to me, because I want us to see Jesus today. I was told by your pastor yesterday, after last night when he called, and uh, I said, have you been preaching any particular thing? And he said, well, a lot of different things, topical lately, but I've been talking a lot about the wilderness, been talking about Jordan, been talking about the promised land, what it is to be a Christian, are you living up to your potential? And uh, I thought, well, thank you. That gives me an idea of where I want to go today because I don't want to do what he's been doing. So that meant I'm not going to be in Joshua. I'm not going to be in Exodus. I'm going to move beyond that. So I thought I would move to the New Testament, a book that is very much like Joshua, but you don't recognize it. It's the book of Ephesians. And if you've got your Bible, you might open them to Ephesians. And uh, this is a book that has become one of my favorite books in all the Bible. The reason is the church at Ephesus was by far the greatest church in the world during its day. Uh, Jerusalem is no longer the greatest church. Antioch was not the greatest church. It became the church at Ephesus. Why? They had the leadership. Paul spent three years of his life in Ephesus, getting the church on its feet. Timothy followed him, and Timothy preached there for years and years and years. They had an evangelist on staff there. His name was Apollos. They had a Sunday school teacher's name, Priscilla and Aquila. They were all there. 
Epaphras was there. But you know who was there for about 30 years? The Apostle John. We don't hear a lot about that, but if you start studying history outside of the Bible, you find that he actually went to Patmos, exiled there from Ephesus, and he had been there. And uh, they had a great history of spiritual leadership. They were a great church. And as you read the book of Ephesians, you go, man, they had it together. They lived the victorious Christian life over and over and over again. But 40 years later, you hear about them again in the book of Revelation. And our Lord says this, you have been, I, I know your works and they're fantastic. And I praise you for all these things. I've only got one thing against you. You left your first love. They lost it. After 40 years of walking as a victorious church, they lost it. How often do we do the same thing? Well, I want you to notice, first of all, today as we look at chapter 1 of Ephesians, what they really were at that time when they began. And uh, Paul writes the letter. We're going to look specifically at verse 16 through uh, 19. But before we do, I want you to notice who they are. How are they described? He says in verse 1, to the saints. Are you all saints? Hopefully. Are you faithful, those who are faithful? Look down at verse 4. Just as he chose us, that word is eclecto, that is he elected us, he selected us out, we were chosen by God. What for? The next verse, he predestined us to adoption as sons. Have any of you ever heard of uh, Jessica Long? Jessica is about 30 probably 33 years old right now, I, I say in that, that range. She was a, uh, born in Siberia. She was born without fibias, that is the lower leg. She was born without heels, part of, part of her foot on both feet were missing. Uh, she didn't have no ankles. Basically, part of her foot was attached to her knee on both, both legs. Her mother gave her up, said, I, I, you know, I can't handle it. So she went up for adoption. There was a lady in Philadelphia, that's, uh, or Baltimore, that was part of a, a Presbyterian church, and she got very involved in uh, wanting to have a child because they could not have one. And so she started saying, I'm going to adopt it, and finally I'm going to Russia to adopt. They called her, and they said, we've got a child for you. And she said, I know I've been praying, and God told me that a child was there. They said, well, you don't understand. We need to tell you a little bit more about it. She's going to require a lot of surgery. You're going to have to have her legs amputated. She said, I don't care. She's my child. I want her. They showed her a picture. She said, she's my child. Her husband went over to pick the child up and looked at it. He said the same thing. They brought her back. They raised her. She's won over 30-something gold medals worldwide in swimming. A gorgeous, gorgeous girl. She has since been married and has a child. Uh, her story was this. I heard her testimony about a year ago, and uh, I was choked up when I heard it. What she said was, my mother loved me even though I was incomplete. She loved me and chose me even though 
there was something wrong with me. She knew that I, that, that I was not fully there. She wanted me anyway. She knew I'd be a lot of trouble. She wanted me anyway. And as she was sharing her testimony, she said, that's really why I was led to the Lord. He wanted me anyway. He saw my faults. He chose me anyway. The thing that I love about being an adopted child of God, and that's what all of us are if we're children of God, he chose you. He saw you before you were ever born, before your parents were ever born, before anyone was ever born. He knew you, and he predestined you to adoption. He said, I want you. I'm going to put a ring around you, and I'm going to have you as my child. Why? Because he loves us. Supreme love that we could never fully understand. We were chosen by God. And then he goes on to say we were adopted into the family of God. That's who we are. Now move down to verse 16. And we're going to look at a prayer for this church or for these people. He says, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you might know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward usward who believe. That great prayer for knowledge. The Apostle Paul said, I pray that you might have revelation in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, I pray that you might know him. That's a strange prayer. He just told us who they are. I mean, that they're, they've, called, they've been called out, they've been adopted as sons, they've been redeemed by the blood. And now he says, I pray that you might know Jesus. Don't they already know him? Why in the world would he pray that? He uses a little word in the Greek language, and it's gnosko. That's to know. And it literally means not to know an event, not to know a fact. It's to have an encounter type knowledge. It's a personal knowledge. I know because I've been there. I know because we have a relationship. A number of years ago, I was doing a, actually preaching at a motivational meeting, in Memphis, Tennessee. Somebody said, where'd you, where'd you go this weekend? I said, I went to see the king. And they said, what? And I said, well, I went to where he lives. And they said, well, we don't understand. I said, the pyramid. And I was just confusing these people. They had no clue what I was talking about. And I said, I went to Memphis. Who lives in Memphis or did? Elvis, the king. I went to the pyramid. That is the large building they have there that seats about 30,000 people. It looks just like a pyramid. And I was speaking that night, and I uh, was speaking before somebody, and his name was Moses. Not really. He's Charlton Heston. And uh, I knew that he was going to be on the program, and so I, I looked at the program. I said, I'm going early. So I went early so that I could hear him and, and maybe meet him and talk to him for a minute or two. I showed up about an hour before he went to speak, maybe 45 minutes. And I went over to my, him in the green room, and I introduced myself, and, 
he said, hello, and he said, have a seat. I said, you're fixing to go on. I don't, I don't want to take your time. He said, sit down. I said, yes, sir. And uh, so I sat down to he and Lydia, his wife, and we talked for about 30, 40 minutes. It was wonderful, and I, I said, you don't need No, I don't need I've done this before. I said, well, so have I, but I don't want to take your time. He said, I want to get to know you. And all he could talk about was Lydia, his wife. He was the most gracious man. And uh, I left and I came home and he had given me a, a book, a new autobiography, and he had written a letter in the front of the book, not just a hello or a pretty lengthy uh, letter, and uh, had given it to me. And I got home and that next day I saw my father and uh, I brought the book to my dad. I gave it to him. He said, Charlton Heston, and he started looking at the front copy, and he started reading it. He said, you know Charlton Heston? I said, no, I don't know him. Well, it says right here that you met him, and you had time with him. I said, yeah, I know, but I don't know him. You see, I know about him. I've been introduced to him. We talked, but I have no relationship with him. I don't really know him. There are a lot of people in churches today that don't really know Jesus. Billy Graham said the greatest field of evangelism is the church. And if you looked at statistics today from modern theological statistics, you'll find that the church is lost. There's probably less than 30 or 40% of the church that is actually saved. Why? They don't know who Jesus is. They answer questions that they have no clue. 66% of people surveyed last year in churches who call themselves Christians say, the Holy Spirit is not a person. The Holy Spirit is a force that you have no relationship with. Can you believe that? My friends, that's wrong. Over 40% said there are a number of ways to have these are people calling themselves Christians evangelical Christians, and you can get there with any religion as long as you're sincere. These are people in church. We have a church in our country that does not know Jesus. You see, Paul knew that was even true in his day. And so he writes this and he says, I pray that you might have a relationship knowledge with Jesus, not just knowing about him, not just being introduced to him, but coming to the point where you lay your life down and you're following him and you become his disciple. Woo, that's heavy. To be a disciple of Christ, to be a follower of Christ, what does that mean? It means you put him on the throne of your heart. What does Paul say? If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, what still happen? You'll be saved. Pretty simple, pretty simple. Do we do that? I think a lot of people do, but I guarantee you there are a lot that don't. Do you know Jesus? Well, the word he uses here is not just gnosko. It's epigonosko. Now, the little prefix epi means on top of. He says, I pray that you might have knowledge on top of knowledge on top of knowledge. I pray that your knowledge of Jesus will increase and increase and increase and continually be increasing. You know what? That's what happens when you spend time with somebody. 
That's what happens when you love somebody. I was uh, handling the Wednesday night prayer meeting at First Baptist Sherman last week, and the, uh, we were talking about revival before we had prayer. It's a Bible study prayer. Had a lady come up to me. She said, we don't have time for revival. And I said, you know, you're, you're, you've made that choice, obviously. And uh, she said, we've got too many activities today. And I said, that's not the problem. She said, well, what is the problem? I said, we don't love Jesus. She said, well, yeah, we love Jesus. I said, no, you don't. If you loved him, you'd want to spend time with him. If you loved him, you would want to know more about him. If you loved him, you'd want to love on him. Tell your wife you'll give her 10 minutes a week. See what she thinks. I tell you what, you won't be married long. She's not going to settle for that. She wants all of you. So does Jesus. He wants every bit of you. He'll let other parts go out as he wants to do it, but let him be in control of all of it. Paul said, I pray that you might know Jesus. Oh, that we might know him. How do you get to know him? You spend time with him. You pray, you pray, you pray. And I don't know how much time y'all spend in prayer and Bible study. I would hope that it's not five minutes a day. I sat down with uh, 12, 13 people. Two of us were pastors, 11 laymen from a church. And uh, they asked me, they said, would you just talk to them about discipleship? So we did a little bit. And I said, let me just ask you a question. I want to find out where you are. How many of you spend time every day with the Lord in prayer. Out of 12 people, actually 11 people that were lay people, how many do you think answered positively? Zero. Everyone said, well, we pray when we need to. You know what that tells me? They don't love Jesus. I'm sorry. I know that's hard, but it's a fact. If if I didn't talk to my wife every day, I said, I'm sorry, I've got too many other things to do. I mean, I've got to play on my computer. I've got to watch TV. I've got to watch sports. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. But I don't have time to talk to you. Wouldn't go very far. I said, how many of you spend time in the Word of God every day? Zero. They said, "We, we read the Bible, but not every day. How often do you eat? I mean, I, I, I try to eat on a regular basis. And you, you're not going to get any spiritual food once a week enough to live on and be victorious. You'll get enough to maybe to stay alive, but not to be victorious. You want to walk with Christ? Spend time with him. Spend time with him. I pray that you might know Jesus. I pray that you might know the hope of his calling. Wow. We're told in 1 Peter that we have been caused to be born again to a living hope. Do you know why we have hope? Because we have Jesus and he's alive. That's the only reason, because he lives. That is the reason we have hope. You know what the word hope means, the, literally, the literal translation of the Old Testament? The Old Testament word for hope is a Hebrew word, tikvah. And the word literally means, if you go back far enough to the, the ancient uh, words of Hebrew, it, it means rope, R-O-P-E, 
you to eat. That doesn't make sense. Well, if you follow the etymology of the word, what happened is they were saying, I can hope in something if I can hold on to it, if I can grab hold of it, if I can attach myself to it. That's what my hope is in. That's right. Does that rope hold on to Jesus? If it does, you've got all the hope you ever need because he's alive and he can hold on to you and he can take care of whatever you're facing in life. And I know sometimes we say, well, I'm not real sure. A little over a month ago, yeah, the last week of June, I had lunch with my son and his two children and his wife, and uh, we were having a good time. Both kids were going to camp the next day. Uh, this was that Saturday. They were going to camp on Sunday. They were going to East Texas to a Christian camp, and uh, everything was great. Do we have any 13-year-olds in here? Anybody around 13 years old? Close to it, maybe. The, uh, my son, was, my grandson was 13. He went to camp, healthy, he thought. On Thursday, he got sick at camp. They took him to the hospital in Tyler. They said, uh, he's okay, he's just dehydrated. They gave him fluids, which was the last thing that should have happened. His mother came, picked him up, took him home, lived in Prosper, and uh, she took him immediately to the hospital there. They did a blood test and came back and said, you're not going home. You're going to the hospital right now. They, you're not driving him. You're going in, a, in an ambulance. They took him to a children's hospital in Fort Worth at Cook's. They kept him for, this, this was late Thursday afternoon, Thursday evening. I got a call at 5 o'clock the next morning. Can you come? Why? Hayden has gone into cardiac failure. And I said, it can't happen. Where was my hope? I got there and I thought, is it in the doctors? Is it in God? I know where my hope is. It's been there for a long time, and I want to tell you, it stays there. I talked to my son and to his wife, and I went in and I talked to Hayden. And they were fixed to transfer him to Dallas to Children's because they had a better heart department there. And uh, they got him to Children's, and uh, I went in and talked to him uh, actually four weeks ago. Uh, he'd been there a month. He'd been in intensive care, one-on-one -on -one with a nurse for a month. She never left the room. They had, they had two nurses, 12-hour shifts. They never left the room. They went to the restroom in the same room he did. They... Food was brought in there. They never left his side for a solid month. Why? Because he was potentially going to die at any moment. You looked at him and you go, he can't. He's six foot two, almost six foot three, and 13 years old. When he went in, he weighed 230 pounds because he had the fluid. He actually weighs a little over 200 pounds, like 205. You'd look at him and say, he's healthy. He ought to be starting on a football team. Well, he was before he went in. We knew nothing was wrong. He had been children's for three days, and they said he's going to have to have a transplant. 
What kind of transplant? A heart transplant. His heart's dead. We've got a pump in there that we've implanted that's doing the pumping. And I went in to see him, and I, he said, Papa, I need a heart. I know. God's got one for you. But son, I can't tell you when you're going to get it. You see, it's not just about you. In order for you to get a heart, you know what has to happen? Somebody has to die for you. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, I never thought of it that way. I said, that's the truth of it. I said, it's just like becoming a Christian. In order for you to get a new heart, somebody has to die for you. That somebody was Jesus. He died for us 2,000 years ago that we might not have to. He became a substitute for us so that we could let his life come into our life. God did not send Jesus to die that we might be better people. Jesus didn't come for that. He's not here to clean you up. I know a lot of people that, well, I'll become a Christian. I'll get a, be a better person. You will never be a better person. Jesus will be a better person in you if you allow him to be there. But the life that is good is his life living in you. It's not your life. The flesh cannot improve. Your new life is a spiritual life with Christ given into you. And you abide in him and he abides in you. And as I told Hayden, I said, I have a feeling. I said, I don't have a word from God, but I have a feeling that you're fixing to get a heart. And it's either going to be a spiritual or a physical heart. It's going to come pretty quick. That was a Saturday, uh, that was a Friday. Saturday morning, I'm at a men's gr group. At, uh, we were actually at the lake and uh, having a prayer time and stuff. And my phone goes off, and I look at it, and I go, oh, my gracious. A heart became available. It had been four weeks. A heart became available. They're going to do surgery tonight. He got surgery that night. I don't know why God did it the way he did it. It's been an absolute perfect five weeks. He went in this week to have a biopsy of his heart to make sure everything is cool there. They did a heart cath. They looked, everything's perfect. He got a second chance to live. Why? Because somebody died for him. The reason we have hope, the reason we can know Jesus is because he died for us and rose again. He goes on to pray that we might understand and know the riches of the inheritance that we have in Christ. You've got everything and I don't have time to go through it today. We'd be here until one. I'm not going to do that. But we have wealth in Christ. We're the richest people in town. Why? You've got all the presence of God living within you. You've got the Holy Spirit of God sealed you and lives with you and empowers you. You have the promises of God, over 7,000 of them given to you that you might claim at any time. You've got all of that. You've got the power of God available to you. There's nothing bigger than your power that God puts inside of you. He can overcome any obstacle that you ever face. 
That's the Christian life. And we settle for less all the time. Why? We live as paupers. Any of you watch uh, Antique Roadshow? There was, there's also one in England. And it's a little different. It's, it's, but they had in England, a, this lady came, this was in, I think, 2017. And she came to the Antique Roadshow, and they, she had a ring she wanted to show them. She had had it since 1985. She bought it for $13, actually pounds, something, but it equated to about $13. And she, uh, she shows up, and she said, everybody's been telling me I need to have this thing appraised. All it is is costume jewelry. I bought it in a, at a trunk sale. That is a, a flea market sale, basically. And the man looked at it and said, ma'am, I can't tell you what it's worth. It looks like just a piece of costume jewelry. But there's something about it that looks different. The setting is a little different. There's a man from Sotheby's here. I want him to look at it and see if he got... So he looked at it. He said, we're going to have to take it and have it appraised. He took it. He had it appraised. He came back and gave her the news. He said, what you thought was worthless is worth at least three quarters of a million dollars. But I think we'll get more at auction. It auctioned for a million. It was a 26-carat diamond ring. But there were no facets. The reason it looked so poor was that it was a, a cushion cut. It just looked like a piece of glass, but it was actually diamond. She had wealth in her hands, but she never, ever, ever do it. You get the picture? We've got Jesus and all of him. And yet, we don't live like it. We have an exchanged life. Jesus came to exchange his life for years. That's really what he came for. When John says, Jesus said in John, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. The word he uses there is the Greek word zoe, and that word is divine life. I've come that you might have my life. We've got his life living in us. That's the eternal life. It had no beginning. It has no end. It's God's life living in us that allows us to live forever with him. We're forever changed because he lives in us today. That's why we're new creations. It's not because we were an improved old creation. We're new in Christ. Old things are, have passed away. All things have become new. It's time to have an exchanged life. I'm going to close with a real quick story. It's about a, an old Indian beggar. Heard it years ago. A man by the name of Ian Thomas shared this. That I was with him for all week for a conference and not speaking with him, but I was there listening to him and he said, there's an old Indian beggar. He was sitting by the side of a road in India, a dusty road, and uh, this was years ago. And uh, he said he could see smoke at the distance, and he said he realized it was dust. And so he, he thought, well, maybe it's a, a coach or something coming this way. He said, but maybe it's a wealthy individual. Maybe somebody will give me some, something out of the coach. And as it came closer and closer, he realized it was a wealthy coach. It was the coach of a wealthy Indian Raja. He came up and he saw the beggar on the side of the road. They stopped the coach. He got out. He walked over to the beggar and said, Beggar, 
would thou give me of thy rice? And the beggar had a little bowl of rice, all he had. He looked at it and he said, give you rice? And he said, yes. He took one grain of rice and he thrust it into his hand and he cursed him. The relative Indian Raja smiled and said, thank you, beggar. Is that all that I would give? And he took a second and he thrust it. And he cursed him again. And the wealthy Indian Raja said, thank you, beggar. And he got in his coach and drove off. As he was driving off, the beggar looked at his bowl, and all of a sudden he saw a little glimmer. A piece of rice. But it was not a piece of rice anymore. It was a piece of gold. And he looked feverishly through his bowl, and he saw a second. And he yelled out, if only I'd known my rice for your gold. You could have had all my rice. If only we had known. My poverty for your wealth, Jesus, you could have had all of me. I would have given you everything I have. My time, my talents, my money, my friends, everything. Just to have you. Because if you've got Jesus, you don't need anything else. There is nothing else. Would you bow your heads? We're going to have an invitation this morning, and just the invitation says it all, just as I am. And I realize most of you in here are probably believing Christians. If you're not sure of that, if there's any doubt of that, your eternity is based upon that. If there's any question, just come. Just come forward. I'm not going to put any pressure on anybody, but we'll talk. But if you're here and you say, I know that I know that I know that I'm a believer. I know Jesus. Do you know him better now than you knew him a year ago? You say, well, no, but I'm an old person. I'm 75 years old. I know him better today than I knew him when I was 74. Better than 73. Every year is better and better and better. Why? Because I love Jesus. And my love continues to grow. Yours can too. And if it's not doing that, you might need to just come to the altar and say, God, put your love in my heart. I just want more of you. I'm going to pray after we ask you to stand, and then we're, I'm going to pray. And if you would stand where you are, and then we're going to have a hymn of invitation just as I am. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you in the name of Jesus that we can come to you. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts through the invitation. I pray that if you've already spoken to our hearts, Father, about our commitment to you, Jesus, that, Father, we'd respond to you. Our desire is to know you, to know you better, to understand you, to be part of your plan, and for you to use us for one thing, and that is for your glory. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.